0: okay well it's ten forty-six.
1: Okay.
0: let's get started who would like to pray for us come on ladies no okay i'll pray for us god i pray that you would uh, bless our time in the word today uh, as we finish uh, looking at a very important subject praying lord that your mercy would rest um, in our study time the father we'd not have anything else distracting us at this moment but you would give us uh, clarity and wisdom and enlightenment because your holy spirit leads us in all truth we pray in jesus name amen Amen. okay well here's what we're going to do at arlene's request and because uh covid robbed us of bringing a conclusion to what we were looking at last time is um we're going to turn to matthew 8 And I don't have any. Um, I don't have any uh, handout sheets like we did with the spaces in between and all that. I will say that for the twentieth and the twenty seventh, we won't have class in here. Probably good to better. Uh, probably better uh, to just join with Chuck's class, and uh, that that might be, you know, for those two weeks. And then on the fourth of October, I'll be back and. We'll be able to pick up them. So, all right, so uh, Matthew 8, verses 1 through 13. Who would like to read that passage?
2: Okay. Great. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper leopard, a leopard came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour.
0: Okay. So, Uh, One thing that we recognize just to review is that the first part of this chapter doesn't seem to have much connection to the second part. Uh, We pick up in verse 5 and all of a sudden we have an instance where a centurion comes. Remember, a centurion is going to be a Gentile in this situation. Maybe they're scared or fearful to come in. They heard us or they read the sign on the door. My nose is giving me problems. But a centurion comes in being a Gentile. And the idea is that his servant is ill he doesn't even ask for Jesus to come. He says, you say the word, and it'll be done. I know what it's like to be in authority. You have all authority. Done. Now remember, what is the remark that's made? It's a very important point. What does Jesus say in response? Verse 10. Arlene, if you're in here, you got to be interactive, girl. <laughs> Hi, Tanya. Hello. are you saying about
1: many will come from the
0: east and west? No, I'm saying verse 10. Oh,
1: sorry. He hasn't seen such great faith. What's that? He
0: hasn't seen such great faith in all Israel. He has not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Now, think about how scathing this is. You've got a Gentile centurion. And he has got a slave that is sick. Jesus, just say the word. It's done. If you remember, the problem that we had with Jews is Jews were always asking for a sign. What sign do you do to show us this? Remember that? Mm-hmm. Notice that this guy didn't even need that. He just believes that Jesus has the authority to do it. And
1: even in the Old Testament, they were told not to look for
0: signs. Right. Yeah. So, Jesus turns around. Number one, notice that it says he marveled. The fact that the Son of God marveled at something is incredible to me. Okay? And he turns around and he looks at the people that are with him. I have not found such a great faith in all of Israel. And then he gives a truth that connects this. He, he's going to show what the far-reaching ramifications of what has just happened is. He says here, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west, and that is a phrase that is used in order to talk about Gentiles in that situation. I'll get it, Tanya. There you go. Uh-huh. will come from east and west. Okay, so Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the patriarchs. And it's going to happen at a time in history in the kingdom of heaven. Everybody see that? Then look what he says. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are the sons of the kingdom? Well, the sons of the kingdom are going to be the Jews. It's their kingdom. Isn't it promised to them? Isn't it their Messiah? They've got all this revelation. This is what everything has been pushing for in history. And this is what makes Jesus's gospel ministry so foundational. He's offering the kingdom and they're actively rejecting the kingdom because they just live lives in such blatant unbelief from what they've been told in 39 books of the Old Testament. It's insane. However, you got a Gentile who probably doesn't know much about the Old Testament whatsoever, but recognizes that Jesus has spiritual authority over things of sickness and just submits. He just believes he's just going to do it. So notice the idea here of finding great faith is actually a slap across the face here. You're going to have Gentiles at the table with the patriarchs in the kingdom. However, those who had all this information and knowledge and should be responding the way that the Gentile centurion is, they're actually going to be on the outside of us. Now don't get freaked out by this phrase, outer darkness. Outer darkness means the darkness outside. That's what it means. So it be the idea of if all the lights are off in the building except in here. And if this is a situation, then you're sitting out there. That's the idea. You are away from the, very imp- from the very personal fellowship experience with the Lord. Now, it says in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People automatically look at that and say, well, if there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's obviously got to be hell because that's what's going to be happening in hell. Yes, that will be happening in hell. But an emotion is not a location. That's important to understand. Anytime that you deal with the weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's actually elicited um, from having profound regret. But here we have to ask ourselves a question. Is this dealing with people being cast out and going into hell? No, it's not whatsoever. And then he says, verse 13, and Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. believed. That's the difference. Great faith believing what god has said see here's what's amazing we hear the gospel message we respond in faith the same faith that we respond to saying yes i'm convinced that that's true it's the same faith that we need to have to live life it's not a different type of faith it's not an amped up type of faith it's just simply what is god's word said and it stands in complete opposition against everything that the culture or the world or the news wants to throw at us how should we think about this situation
1: And don't necessarily take their word or their their starting point as the way that you should look at the situation. Either. Exactly.
0: Exactly. i tell you something that's very helpful. Uh, Jamie, I know you've listened to it, I think, a couple of times, is the uh, biblical framework uh, messages from Charlie Clough. There's 224 of them. But it talks a lot about recognizing that the Bible is what sets the standard for truth. And you can go to BibleFramework.org, I think it is, and get all those lessons for free. Or you can even order it and they will send it to you for free. But, What's that? I don't I don't know that they have. Some of the audio is very shoddy. But they're also working on trying to put it in a more is condensed like- and presentable fashion that actually has like a, a study book that goes with it and that kind of thing. Yeah. So. They're constantly developing it, but. you
1: know that is on there?
0: What do you mean? About this? Uh, the whole, the whole. Oh,
1: okay. The whole, the whole series is all framework. And...
0: Okay. Yeah, the whole series is devoted to... to. If I you're looking, wondering... well, if you're looking for him to be teaching on the outer darkness as well, uh, like specifically, I don't know that he has that, and I don't know that Charlie would agree with my understanding of the outer darkness here. Uh, we actually got into a big conversation about the outer darkness when we were uh, eating at one point together, lunch or dinner or something. Uh, with Charlie Bing and Roger Finkhauser and Jay Paul Tanner when they were here. Uh, and Paul Tanner doesn't believe that the outer darkness, that believers can be in the outer darkness. He believes it's hell. Mm-hmm. So he's got a journal article written on it that I've downloaded. I haven't read it yet. But I told him I disagree with him. And he knows the arguments. He understands the arguments. but
3: Yeah, I don't believe that it is hell either. But I just wonder what... You're talking about it being kind of what I understood, that it's just like another room outside of... Of um, the presence of, uh, you know, everything that's um, really good going on. Yeah, and that's that is sad.
0: Well, there's some people that want to equate it with like a Protestant purgatory,
3: I is know, what they call
0: it, that kind of thing. It like. And it's not. Uh, the fact that you're already accepted into heaven is what negates it from being a purgatory situation. Uh, also, at that point, you're not trying to earn yourself into a deliverance situation. With with the doctrine of purgatory, everybody ends up in that situation unless you had some unbelievably great works. And from what I understand, even in that situation, they're still held there, but just for a shorter amount of time. And then they graduate into heaven. That That's, that's just work salvation. So it's yeah, insane. What uh, mean. The, this idea right here, trying trying to relate the outer darkness to purgatory, it really... That, that, that is a way to dismiss it quickly without sitting down and actually walking through the text. So
3: is this just in the millennium time, or... I
0: believe it will.
3: Okay, and so then afterwards that person will be in the outer darkness. Well,
0: I believe, I believe what happens in particular is if we talk about they will come from east and west, and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it seems like what we're talking about specifically is the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to take place in heaven before... Uh, Christ and his faithful ones returned to the earth.
1: Which
3: is why that guy got tossed out. Cuz he was wearing
1: the right clothes.
0: Cuz he wasn't wearing the right clothes.
1: <laughs>
3: so
0: here we go. Matthew 22. Okay. Cuz this is this is that parable. Yes. We're going to deal with it. We're going to walk through it since we walked through it a while back. Matthew 22. So it's important to observe everything that's going on here. It really is. It's important. And if if some of these passages still give you confusion, sit down with your Bible and take the time to kind of write these out and observe everything. So notice Jesus, there's the speaker, spoke to them again in parables. Now stop. Who is them? If we back up to 45, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees, see that? And then if you back up to verse 23, when he had entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him. So notice you've got a good understanding of who the direct audience is of this teaching, okay? And notice he spoke to them in parables. Now, remember the reason why Jesus started speaking in parables is because everything that had been revealed by him so far to the Pharisees had fallen on deaf ears and they had turned away. So... Um, parables is also the genre the idea is what's the great overarching theme here and do all the details support our conclusion okay so Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared stop what is the subject the subject is the kingdom of heaven so in Matthew 8 the relationship of outer darkness has some parallels to the idea of the kingdom of heaven remember they'll come from east and west and recline the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven So there's a there's a connection there with the kingdom of heaven. Notice the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened calf, or my fattened livestock, uh, and all but or, or all butchered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, "The wedding feast. Sorry, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore." to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now there's a huge barrage of problems you would have with this idea. If you were to take just this one section here, verses 1 through 14, and you go into our library, and you pull out 15 commentaries, and you set them out, and you would read, you would find, Because this man was not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, This is the reason why he was thrown out into the outer darkness. And the problem there is it's a theological assumption. It doesn't take into account the history of how people operated at that time. So if you remember the discussion that we had there, who gives the wedding garment to the guests? Who supplies those? The father father does. And the fact that he's even there in the wedding feast, in the wedding hall, while it's going on and he's not clothed properly, shows that obviously he made it there. You see what I'm saying? God does not allow for unregenerate people to step into the wedding feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb and then say, well, you're not dressed right, so let's throw you to the lake of fire. That judgment doesn't even come for another 1,000 years until after that. You see what I'm saying? So those people don't even get dealt with until much, much later. That's important. So... Something to notice here as well is notice the problem here is that everybody's too busy to come to the wedding feast. Now, let me ask you a question from what you read, this read of this, is the wedding feast prepared now? Is it ready now? Is the wedding ready now?
1: The invita- as in the invitations have been sent out
0: and I'm saying that the wedding is ready. Is that true or false? From this, it sounds
2: like
0: it is. It is. In fact, the wedding was ready when he sent out to invite the Jews. The wedding was ready also when he sent out to invite the Jews again. And instead, they mistreated everybody. In fact, let me, let me, if we were to get it in the mail and open up the envelope and take a look here, let me tell you what it would say. It would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what the wedding invitation says. That's the wedding invitation. And this is also the message of Jesus and John the Baptist uh, beginning ministry. And this is what makes the book of Matthew so critical to understanding the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 12, the Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the works that Jesus was doing. And he turns away from them and he begins speaking to them in parables as a means of judgment because of their denial of him. So this is all super critical stuff. So now he sends out his slaves, go to the highways, go find anybody you can. Whether good or bad, doesn't matter who they are, they're brought in. Now remember, who's the audience here that Jesus is speaking to? Chief priests and the Pharisees, the elders of Israel. Boy, this had to grate them like no other. This had to just make them oh, fingernails on a chalkboard kind of thing. I mean, they, they must have been having such a hard time because righteousness and holiness and this presentation of perfection was what they were all about, right? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's dead man's bones. That's It's all about appearances with them. So with that kind of idea in place, he instead moves on. We're spreading out. We're going to get other people. Doesn't matter who you find. Invite them. And the wedding hall was filled. Verse 12, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Calvinists grab a hold of verse 14 and drive this home like it's the greatest verse it's ever. Few, sorry, for many are called, but few are chosen. Well, the gospel call goes out to everybody, but God only chooses those whom he wishes to save. Does that have anything to do with the context of this? Not a thing. In fact, we know from the use of the word for there that he's giving an expansion or higher details about what has just happened there many are called to participate in the wedding feast the wedding supper of the lamb but few are chosen or few are choice ones that will be in there why is that well if we relate it back to what we saw in Matthew 8 faith not responding that's the problem is the refusal of the nation of Israel to respond. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be there, and tons of people from the east and the west are going to be there, but the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out. And for whatever believers have known Christ but have been unfaithful, and I believe unfaithful especially in light of massive revelation that they've received, uh, there is a responsibility on the church to be evangelizing and discipleship. And when we fail in our responsibility, other people are worse off, and we are, when we're not doing them.
3: So is he
0: talking of that that man represented the Jews? Yes. Uh I would say that. Or he's representing, uh, well, possibly, if the the Jew has responded to faith in Christ. That's what makes the difference. Otherwise, he wouldn't be standing there in the wedding hall at all. He would have never been able to get up there. Right. Well, the big the big strike with the chief priests and the Pharisees are the fact that they came along and they killed the messengers that were sent to them, and they were they were judged because the Father's going to come and burn their their house down, and that happened in eighty seventy.
3: Right.
0: So he judged them. So he's letting them know that judgment's going to come, and Gentiles are going to come in and take their place. Other people that they didn't expect, and the wedding hall is going to be filled that way. Yeah,
3: good and evil, but he got in. But he got
0: thrown out, mm-hmm. and I believe what that's showing us is is that he refused to put on the wedding garment that the father provided. Not that he wasn't saved. Uh, I believe it's righteousness. I believe it, I, I, I don't. Let me say this. I believe it's righteousnesses. Let me say that. Uh, and, and here's the thing: we talk about positional righteousness. I believe in Christ. Okay. When I believe in Christ, positionally speaking, I'm declared righteous in His sight. Now the question is, is will I live in light of my standing with him? Will my state uh, increase as I'm giving more things over to him, dying to myself, taking up my cross and following him, being willing to suffer for his name, those types of things. If that's the case, then what I find is, is that I am now walking in righteousness. I don't just have righteousness full and free. I'm now employing righteousness as it's being developed in my life because I'm submitting to the Lord. Now let me give you an example real quick. Put your finger here and turn to Revelation 19.
1: And I suggest that then maybe justification is what got him into the feast, but he refused to. Um, he refused to do anything beyond that. He refused to grow beyond that.
0: Yes, I would say that. I would say that justification put him in the vicinity. Yeah. But he might have walked in thinking that he deserved to be there, and he did not.
1: Yeah,
3: I get that, that much, sense. and I got Revelation, that far. But then. Nineteen. But then did. Was there a time lapse between there where everybody just kind of wandered
0: around? We don't know. Remember, a parable is meant to drive home a primary point and all the details are to support it. I
3: just wonder why there was just one because there were good and evil people
0: there. It's just an example. It's just an example. (laughs) Well, they went out and found them good and evil. That uh, that doesn't mean that they came into the feast evil. That means it didn't matter where they came from in life or whether they were moral or immoral. When they responded to the gospel... Okay. And when they live faithfully,
2: well, this was also to the priests and the
0: the chief priests. Yeah, but I think, two, th-
2: but well, that's who he was speaking to, and they viewed the Gentiles as unclean.
0: Yes, they considered them complete garbage. This is yeah. a massive slap in the face to the idea of Jewish righteousness and yeah. purity and all this garbage.
2: So,
3: also, the evil part comes. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. how do you get Yeah, the other people had had to
0: change. Right. Okay. So look look at nineteen Revelation nineteen. Look at verse six. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's important. The bride has made herself ready. Notice it's something that she does by submitting to the Lord. She's made herself ready. She's dressed herself up ready. She's employed what the Lord has given to her. Now watch this. Verse eight, made herself ready, I think has to do with good works that were done in faith, okay? Or we would say with Galatians five, faith working through love is the way we'd look at it. Look at verse eight. It was given to her, to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints and that's actually plural there it should be properly translated righteousnesses so the garments that they the garments that the bride is getting to wear at this time are the righteous acts that were performed while in the body it's representative of the fact that they lived a faithful life they were faithful to the word
3: so, so that, that
0: guy
3: is a symbol of someone who didn't carry anything. That's, didn't.
0: the guy is a symbol of somebody who everything was freely provided for him to be acceptable
3: to
0: think. be in the feast, and he did not employ it. He
3: just went in there for the food. It's it's the carnal. <laughs> it's Quite the you that. must think
0: there's a buffet going <laughs> on. The there's a there. I mean, it, he's a carnal Christian. Okay. He's someone who lived for self. He's someone who who existed in envy and jealousy and strife and decided to, instead of submitting to the spirit, it was their agenda. It was going to be their way. They'd already determined this. This is going to be the way that they wanted it. Jesus was not going to tell them differently. And if Jesus even tried to get in on their lives, they're going to say, no, God, don't mess up my plans. I've already got it done this way. It's somebody who is refusing the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why why a lot of people do that is because there's no surety in the way that we like to feel security. Uh The idea of throwing up your hands and going, Lord whatever you want. You want to give me this? It's Great. Terrifying. You want to give me this? Great. You want to give me this? Great. Yeah. But, but I mean, just, just being, it's, it's amazing what God will do with somebody who's fully yielded to him. Yeah. God, I raise my hands. I mean, when we talk about surrender to Christ and a lot of people use that for the go to heaven when you die idea, we talk about when Christians surrender to Christ, it really is kind of like uh, bind me to you in my life. You know, I'm, I'm 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 giving up all rights. I'm waving the white flag to stop resisting. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, now now do what you'll do, and you'll be amazed at what God can do when we come to that point. This guy didn't do that, not so at all.
3: He didn't do it, so he's cast out.
0: He's cast out. So he does not get to experience the intimate opportunity to sit at the marriage table with the Lord and the patriarchs and other faithful believers and celebrate. Uh, the opportunity that Jesus Christ is getting ready to take over the world and establish His kingdom. So
3: I put myself in that place, and I'm
1: just thinking how awful that would be. That's, That's exactly what the weeping and gnashing is. Of teeth comes in. Yeah,
0: you would. It, it'll be so awful that you will weep and gnash your teeth. You know. But why does why does Jesus teach something like this? It's a motivator. His grace is the carrot. The loss of rewards and benefits and privilege and intimacy is the stick. He has no problem letting us know you will be disciplined in this way. And it's not disciplining us for sin. It's the fact that our unfaithfulness to him is giving us exactly what we've earned from him. Yeah. Sin's taken care of.
3: It's like they can't, they're going to be kind of in a room where they can see.
0: Yeah. Here's one of the great problems with purgatory. One of the great problems with purgatory is the idea of, is you have to serve out a penitent period until your sins are dealt with. Yeah. Well, what that tells me is that the cross is not sufficient for the it's Catholic. Necessary. In this situation, the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with our sins being taken into account. It's the opportunities for not obeying him. Not obeying him was that sin, yeah, but it's already paid for on the cross. The question is now, are we going to get what we deserve? And what we're going to find out is that some people are going to experience profound shame because they refused. Their works were wood, hay, and stubble, and they burn up quickly. They have nothing to show. They have nothing to show for it. So yeah, so let's turn to 25, Matthew 25. We'll finish this. And this is actually a pretty long section. So if I move briskly through it, forgive me, we've got about 15 minutes. All of this is resultant upon the parable of the 10 virgins. There are 10 virgins. They are all virgins. There's not some that are kind of virgins and some that are fake virgins, okay? They're all virgins. They all have lamps. Five are prepared, five are not. When, when, when the rubber meets the road and the bridegroom's announcement is made, five, they all trim their wicks and are ready to move forward with their lamps. And the five who are unprepared realize, we're going to run out of light before he gets here. Give us some of your oil. And being good, Christian, godly people that the other five are, they say, no, go get your own oil. We can't give you oil and we'll have enough for ourselves. That's not going to work. No. So they go off to buy oil. And while they do, the bridegroom comes and he shuts the door. And everybody gets freaked out by this. Verse 11, uh, chapter 25, verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. That's the point he's trying to get across. You do not know the day or the hour. That's the point of the parable. Now notice, verse twenty-five, chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to... It's about the kingdom of heaven. Does everybody see that? Okay, so now all of that is in line. When it says he did not know them, does that mean that they were unsaved people? No, that's not what it means. They were virgins. They were there. They had lamps. They just weren't prepared. The point to get across here is the fact that they were not prepared to meet the bridegroom when he came. Because
3: they had no fellowship or no relationship.
0: But I believe that's exactly what it was. They wasted fellowship. So, verse 14. For... And that's what makes this next part difficult is because it's coming off of that. So in what way does four relate to what it was uh, before that or what would occur previously? For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. What is just like a man about to go on a journey? The kingdom of heaven, okay? So he's giving us comparisons about things in the kingdom of heaven again. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one each according to his own ability. Notice that, to his own ability. What you are able to do, the Lord has entrusted to you perfectly what you are able to do. Some people can only do one. That's fine. Some people can do two. That's fine. Some people can do five. That's fine. You see what I'm saying? Some people can do more, and therefore they were entrusted, they became stewards That were entrusted with exactly to their ability. And and I say this because this could get up on a strange thing. God did not give them more than their ability. That's very different from did God give them more than they could handle. God always gives us more than we can handle so that we'll stop being bullheaded and trust him. Okay? But the idea is, is what is their ability as believers in Christ? What are they able to do? I'm going to give them this to be faithful with. That's what it is. Some it's a lot, some it's a little. So, moving on here. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with them and gained five talents more. Good production. 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Great production. Verse 18, but he who had received the one went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his money's, his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. So he comes back and it's time to... Uh, uh, I don't know what would we call it. Call it in, I guess, is what we're doing. Okay, settle it. Yeah, settle the books. Balance the books. Yeah. Verse 20, the one who had received five came up and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with few th- with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Same response, same duplication. We often think because the numbers are five and two, it's a different duplication. No, exact same duplication according to their ability. Okay, verse 24, and the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But the master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. And that should probably be in the form of a question is what that is. Now notice that the master has given no indication that that's how he is, that he's a hard man, that he's somebody who's going to steal from others to better himself. He hasn't given that at all. In fact, if that was the case, he wouldn't have entrusted any of them with anything. So that's something to think about. And another point to bring up here is notice that the wicked, lazy slave, he was still entrusted with something. So if what we're going to deal with here is outer darkness... And the idea of being entrusted, well, it's the entrusted with the message of salvation and because he didn't believe. If that's the case, then his salvation was based on works all along. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Unless he invested it and was faithful with it, he couldn't get to heaven. Well, that's meriting works. That's a work salvation. So that automatically can't fly in the face of everything else that's written in the Bible. Verse 27, then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Now, verse 27 is a real stinger for people who are saying that what he was entrusted with was salvation or the gospel and whether or not he responded to it. Because notice that what the master is indicating here is that there was just a little least bit that you could have done and that would have been enough. You know, at least if you would have had that, you would have had something. So everybody's oh well you got to be totally sold out to jesus in order to go to heaven when you die well here he's saying that if your interpretation of this is correct all you have to do is a little bit of the least and the big problem really there is that you're still having to do something to be accepted that's wrong okay so when we talk about go to heaven when you die in the situation it doesn't even fly with all the details of the parable it just doesn't verse 28 therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents for to one who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So notice what you think you have when you come before him at this time when he's going to settle accounts. And if it wasn't employing or stewarding well what he gave to you according to your ability, it will even be taken from you, and it will be given to the other who was faithful, and they will have even more heaped upon them. Verse 30, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, immediately, everybody says, oh, well, notice in verse 30, he's called a worthless slave. Notice up in verse 26, he's called a wicked and lazy slave. Obviously, he wasn't a true, genuine Christian. Stop. They all started out as slaves. And if the master here is Jesus, then he knows the difference. And it's like, well, I'm not really sure what you guys is really going to heaven when it's you like die. He
1: chose Judas and he knew what Judas was going to do. Yep.
0: He chose so. Judas. So I think it's important for us to to recognize that anytime somebody wants to read passages like this through the glasses of go to heaven when you die, you end up in all kinds of problems. Let the text take you where it is. And if it talks about that works are involved, then accept that. But don't let it creep into justification by faith alone. You can't let it do that. Otherwise, you don't have a gospel at all. So. And to,
1: they're invited to the marriage. Mm-hmm. Which is in a place mm-hmm. there's the outer darkness which is still another place right and lake of fire all that other stuff those are all other places yes to say that oh if the and it's the outer darkness or you're in the marriage supper that's and those are the only two places that exist that would that would be silliness yes because there's other I mean just like we're in one room and other people are in other rooms in this building, just because you're not in the marriage supper doesn't mean you're in hell. Mm-hmm. So,
2: exactly.
0: That
1: seems kind of silly to, you know, to just automatically, oh, I guess I'm not in the marriage supper, I guess I'm going to hell.
0: Exactly. So, but I think it's important for us to recognize we have passage after passage. after. I mean, you're exactly right. We have passage after passage after passage that tells us about the importance of being faithful. Mm-hmm. So let me share with you uh, two more little passages. One will reinforce that point. The other one will mess you up real bad. And you have to mm-hmm. deal with it for two weeks. And But we won't come back and deal with it. You'll just have to deal with it on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to Matthew 5. We've got about six minutes. We can finish up with this. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse uh, 11. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we receive persecution for Jesus' sake, we're to rejoice and be glad because there's great reward. Now, who's he talking to here? If You back up to the beginning of five. Look at verse one. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began teaching them. Everybody see that? So the idea is he removes himself from the crowds and he begins teaching his disciples. Now, it seems at the end of this, whenever you get to the end of chapter seven, the crowds eventually came to hear the teaching as well. But his primary focus is I'm teaching the disciples here. Uh, what's going on. Uh, Now, here's a question. Disciples, saved or unsaved? Saved people. So he's not necessarily talking to them about justification. He's talking to them about sanctification truths. And notice he's dealing with the idea of reward. Now, let's mess you up very thoroughly.
1: Thank
0: you. Uh, Let's go over to verse 29 of chapter 5. 29 and 30 are always biggies for people that really mess them up. Mm. If your right hand... (laughs) If, sorry, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, does everybody have a little number next to the word hell there?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what is it? What does the little marginal note tell you? 5:22
1: 22. Gehenna.
0: Gehenna. The word there for hell is actually the word Gehenna. Now I'm going to state this: Gehenna is not hell. How do we know that? Number one, Jesus is speaking. Number two, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Number three, Jesus has done has just got done talking to them about the importance of reward. Jesus moves on in verse 13, talking to them about how they're the salt of the earth, how they're the light of the world, how they're the preservation. Uh, of righteousness that's going on in their society right now and then he's going to turn around and tell them that if the right eye causes them to stumble they're to tear it out and throw it from them because if they're not willing to take drastic actions like that they're going to go to hell well now what is your deliverance into hell been made contingent upon your what your works notice that your works i believe that gehenna is an imagery that is used to dictate the same idea as the outer darkness If you want to know what Gehenna is, Gehenna is a Greek term that's used for the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom, and the Valley of Hinnom is actually located, I think it's to the east of Jerusalem, and it was the trash dump. It was actually the place that became the trash dump because back in Jeremiah's time, it was the place where Israel, when they were under um, idolatrous measures, were sacrificing their children in that area, and because those acts were so terrible Uh, to even speak or think about at that time, instead of doing anything with that plot of land, they turned it into the city trash dump. And so it became Gehenna. What's that? Always
3: burning.
0: Always burning. So whenever he's talking to them about that, it's not that he's saying that you will be thrown into hellfire like we think the lake of fire, brimstone, and that type of thing. What he's talking about is garbage trash. He's talking about is you'll have nothing. If you're not willing to take drastic actions against ongoing sin in your life, to prevent you from continually fellowshipping with that sin instead of fellowshipping with the Lord, then He will make He He will make sure that you have not earned uh what I want to say, an, an intimate point with Him. That your life will essentially amount to nothing. You'll have eternal life, you'll be in heaven, but you'll have nothing to show for it. This is another one of those stick verses. How about thirty? If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, it's better for you to take the drastic measures now and have a rich entrance into the kingdom rather than it is for you to say, no, I'm fine, it's cool, I got it under control, no big deal, I don't need to deal with it, I'm great. And instead, you get messed over. Now, that doesn't mean that you will go to hell when you die. It's the word Gehenna. It's important to see this. And this is not something just like, you know, we think about eye and you think about right hand and immediately for a guy, they're thinking lust and pornography and things like that. But we're talking about something as simple as gossip. We're talking about bitterness. We're talking about unforgiveness. We're talking about all kinds of things like that. If we're not willing to deal with our sin seriously, then we're not wanting Jesus' best for us because he always promises nothing but hope and grace on the other side of those things. If we're willing to hold on to those sins instead of dealing with them, we've essentially bought ourselves an opportunity uh, that is less than what we could have had before him. So that's hard teaching, but we have to make sure that it doesn't violate our justification. We have to keep those things clear. And there are dozens of reasons why this is all moving to a discipleship situation. How do you live life now in light of the coming kingdom? So let me leave you with one last one and then we'll pray. Chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. Chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All the things that we worry about in life. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How do you make it through? How do you deal? You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And if all we're worried about is His coming kingdom and His righteousness, then all of a sudden sin becomes ridiculous in our lives and we deal with it. Any thoughts? Before we wrap it up. I think
3: I got lots of clarification.
0: Thank you. Good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Awesome. Let's pray father thank you for our time together looking at your word looking at the concept of outer darkness Uh, father you're uh, a serious god you're a holy god you're a just god you're a righteous god we must remember those things but you're also gracious and you invite us constantly to come into a greater love relationship with you you already love us completely but you desire for us to go deeper in knowing you and knowing you and knowing you father i pray that not fall on deaf ears and i pray that our hearts would embrace that And that we would look at the things in our lives, the things that we hold on to, the things that we entertain, and we would forsake those things for the better life that you offer. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.